1 Corinthians 8. <laughs> Finally, to 1 Corinthians 8. I know we've been in 1 Corinthians 7 for some time. Uh, you know it even better than I. Uh, and maybe we're wondering whether we'd ever be finished, but that uh, was for a good reason. There was so much in 1 Corinthians 7 by way of important and practical teaching for us on uh, topics of uh, singlehood and sexuality, marriage and divorce, and uh, way too much for us quickly to skip through. But yes, uh, I did say 1 Corinthians 8, and that's where we'll go this morning for more downright earthy and practical uh, direction for our everyday lives together as a church. After first we pray. Father, we thank you that you've not left us in the dark or wondering how we should live this life. Some things are so difficult, Father, and have given cause to great struggles. How would we possibly sort through these things and live the life to which you have called us, for which you have bought us, for which the Lord Jesus Christ laid down his very life for us to have? Had you not revealed to us your will and your word? We're thankful, Father, and now we're prayerful that you will instruct and mold us by your truth. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll read the 13 verses. Now concerning food offered to idols. See, Paul's going, continuing through this list of things that they have written to him about. Uh, so the pattern continues. Concerning this matter, you, you know, wrote me about. Concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom uh, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating and in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. 
Therefore, if, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Looking back at church history, holding the telescope backwards, as we sometimes are wont to do, it can appear to our imagination that the early church must have been, in its simplicity, a church without struggles, you know, a church of perfect harmony, a church perfectly united, if for no other reason than it existed so close to the days of Christ, of his earthly ministry, that is. But Paul's letters to the early churches, and certainly this one to the Christians in Corinth, help us to turn the telescope right way round. They open our view to a more detailed and realistic, if not uh, as pretty a view, of the life in the early church. They're, they're reality checks for us, aren't they? Here we get the church warts and all, but that's not an entirely bad thing. In fact, it is in noticing how much like the early church that we ourselves are, that we also come to see how the remedies for church troubles offered by the Scriptures are as timeless as Scripture itself. Do we have differences of views? Do we have contrary opinions, differing convictions about many things right here in this little flock? Yes, we do. And we live with those differences, trying very, very hard to live in Unity, remembering that it is a sad fact of church history and one of which we're not proud that too often those differences, even disagreements, have spawned disunity, the likes of which has to one degree or another marked and marred the church of Jesus Christ. Remember the church in Galatia where the saints were biting and devouring one another, Paul writes in that book. The church in Philippi witnessed disagreement between two of its most influential women, whom Paul had to entreat to agree in the Lord. Even churches that were known for their unity, such as the church in Ephesus, nevertheless stood in need of reminders about the importance of maintaining and, and cherishing their unity. The church in Rome, I was reminded, uh, Debbie was doing her reading this morning and, and uh, pulled up Romans 14 which in the Lord's providence is actually the parallel passage to this very chapter, to see that Rome had its share of struggles. And then this one, this church in Corinth, which has been called the most dysfunctional church in the entire Bible, maybe in the whole first century, uh, first century and a half. Uh, it's been no surprise to us uh, to find that divisions and Problems can divide a church, as we've seen in Corinth, dividing themselves as they did in Corinth along party lines, remember, as we've seen one party aligning itself with this teacher, another party aligning itself with the name of that leader. They'd even sunk to the level of suing each other in court, in civil court. Their relationships, as we've noticed, were breaking down, and, and now this... They're in disagreement about eating meat that had been offered as sacrifices in pagan temples to idols. Let me lay it out for you just in case you're unfamiliar with this history. If you're going to visit a friend's home in, in Corinth or going to a party of some sort and that friend were well enough, uh, well off enough to have meat to serve, it was entirely likely 
that that meat would have been at one time previously offered to some god as a sacrifice. Part of it was probably burnt, which may not be an entirely unfamiliar experience at your home. Supper time may be associated with uh, smoke alarms. I don't know, never at the Burkett house. But uh, part of it would be burnt for the gods. Part would be given to the priests at the temple. And then part of it would be served with carrots and potatoes nicely cooked in the crock pot together. Or when you were out at the grocery and shopping at the markets in Corinth to the meat that Corinthian Christians encountered for sale would likely have been previously offered to idols. Such was the culture in which they were living. Now, you know where all this is going, don't you? Because we've read the passage. Some Christians didn't have any problems at all eating that meat. No scruples at all about buying that meat, taking it home, cooking it up, serving it to their families and friends. They knew they had knowledge, and that's a key word, a key theme in this passage, in this chapter. They had enough knowledge to understand that, that idols are nothing. They're nothing at all. And, and it hardly mattered what kind of incantations had been spoken over this meat or, or where it had been and what temple it had been before it hit the market, what kind of pagan... It, it's just meat. They understood that. Other Christians, and it's not difficult to imagine they were likely newer Christians, Christians who are weak of conscience, to use Paul's expression, were not as confident about that having probably just recently been converted from their paganism, the whole matter of, of gods and idols was still very real for them. They could, they could not eat such meat in good conscience. To them, it seemed sinful. It was dishonoring to God as far as their consciences told them. Paul describes them in verse 7, some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. You can see now why, can't you, why the, or how the door had swung open for conflict to enter into the church. The weaker Christians would find themselves perhaps in a, a position of having to, to you know, send a negative RSVP uh, for certain gatherings, exclude, exclude and excuse themselves from certain gatherings if they found themselves maybe at such gatherings. They would, they would find a, a real struggle because of the meat that was set before them, a real moral quandary, difficulty. Their consciences would be on the line. Then they might even find themselves tempted to criticize their freer brothers. Well, that's been known to happen couple times in the church, hasn't it? But the animosity would not remain one-sided. More mature Christians would, would chafe at the censure of their weaker brethren and sometimes no doubt become a little more, uh, more than a little bit irritated with them, critical of them, impatient with them. Rifts would develop between people who would group themselves together, and before long you would even see them at church, at the church building, you know, sort of grouping themselves over here and over there according to their respective uh, convictions, sitting in different parts of the sanctuary. Alas, as the saying goes, the more things change, the more they stay the same. 
Change the names and the subjects of dispute. The story remains exactly the same. Disputes over attending the theater and movies. Over the use of tobacco and alcohol. Over dancing. Over hemlines. Over card playing. Over dating. Over labor union membership. Over the use of lipstick and rouge, for crying out loud. Over going out to eat on the Lord's Day, over associating with Christians who participate in those things, over associating with Christians who associate themselves with people who do these things. And the list goes on. I say disputes over all things of that caliber have not only divided entire churches, but entire denominations. Brothers and sisters of Christ have held each other at, at arm's length, looking daggers at one another, even across the sanctuary, over just these sorts of disputable matters of Christian liberty. Now, sometimes a challenge to the narrow legalism of some in the church you should know better is needed, according to Donald Gray Barnhouse, anyway, the Bible study hour fame, former pastor of, of the historic 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He told his own congregation about an experience he had at a Bible conference in Montrose, Pennsylvania. About 200 people were present, he said, and a few older people. One day, two old ladies complained to me in horror because some of the girls were not wearing stockings. These ladies wanted me to rebuke them. This was about the year 1928. Looking them straight in the eye, I said, the Virgin Mary never wore stockings. <laughs> These ladies gasped. She didn't? <laughs> I answered, in Mary's time, stockings were unknown. So far as we know, they were first worn by prostitutes in Italy in the 15th century when the Renaissance began. Later, uh, a lady of nobility wore stockings at a court ball, greatly to the scandal of many people. And before long, however, everyone in the upper class was wearing stockings. And by the time of Queen Victoria, stockings had become the badge of the prude. These ladies, continues Barnhouse, who were holdovers from the Victorian epoch, had nothing more to say. I did not rebuke the girls of the United States for not wearing stockings. A year or two afterward, most girls in the United States were going around without stockings in the summer, and nobody thought anything about it. Nor do I believe this led toward disintegration of moral standards in the United States. Times were changing, and the step away from Victorian legalism was all for the better. Well, it's uh, humorous enough, but Paul's concern in this passage is not to rebuke Christians who, who should understand these things and their Christian liberties uh, and un have a more understanding for others. Uh, it, it is rather to steer seasoned Christians and mature Christians in their treatment of what he calls the weaker Brethren, weaker brethren, or other words, Christians who have not yet matured enough in the Christian faith to recognize the liberties that they and their brothers and sisters possess in Christ. 
In every church of every age, there are Christians at differing stages of maturity, aren't there? There will be those who have grown enough into the faith to recognize that while there are plenty of black and white issues on which Christians must absolutely stand firm and not budge, there are also many areas of gray in which individual Christians and individual Christian families may legitimately disagree, are at full liberty to choose whether or not to participate, to enjoy, or even to indulge. It is to the strong Christians, those who have grown up enough in Christ to have shed some of those former hang-ups over issues like, like these that we've listed, who now must live with their weaker brethren, who have not yet outgrown these, these extra-biblical scruples that Paul writes here and, and other places, as I've mentioned, like Romans 14, about with this very simple counsel and direction. And one word. Love. Love. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Love them. Can't you just hear the response of these uh, knowledgeable Christians in Corinth? But we have knowledge. You know, we, we, we're in the know about this stuff. It's they who don't have knowledge. They've got to be, you know, brought up to our speed. And of course, weaker Christians have much to learn and growing and understanding is, is part of the Christian life for us all. But these people, these uh, mature, remember the opposite of weak consciences, strong conscience, I guess you'd call it, they thought they were something. They had this knowledge. Paul anticipated all of this, of course. And here's how I understand verse 1. When Paul quotes to them, maybe your Bible has quotation marks there in verse 1, quotes to them what had probably become a popular saying among them in Corinth, we know that all of us possess knowledge. What I imagine Paul saying is this, yes, I know all about your knowledge, just like I know all about your riches and about your reign, how you'd all become kings over there in Corinth. Remember that? That biting satire back in chapter 4? The Corinthian Christians had come to take a very high opinion of themselves, of their knowledge and of their reign. If only we could be kings. So if only we apostles could be kings like you all are in Corinth, Paul says, his lips dripping with the, the satire. So I hear him tongue-in-cheek now, too, saying, oh, yes, you're all so knowledgeable. Oh, my. It is so very, very impressive, too. He's setting them up for this, and it flashes like an axe blade falling in verse 1, this knowledge puffs up. Whack! <laughs> right, at the, right at the root. Don't you wish you could say things like that sometimes? There's some people who seem bent on trying to impress you with their, their knowledge, 
who craftily steer conversations with you into directions sure to grant the maximum opportunity to flag for you and everyone else their erudition, their knowledge for you and everyone to admire. Wouldn't you just love to say sometime, yes, yes, oh, you're so smart. You are so knowledgeable. Please continue. I hang on every drip of knowledge that falls from your tongue and into the vessel of my mind. Please, sir, may I have some more, you know? Knowledge puffs up. Not, of course, that Paul's opposed to knowledge. You know this. You've read enough of Paul. We could go to all of his letters to show that he intends that Christians grow in knowledge and in understanding, of course. But knowledge can puff a person up. You've seen it. I've seen it. We've all seen this. We've seen people walking around the church with heads puffed up like helium balloons, and it doesn't help anyone. It doesn't help anything. In fact, it does just the opposite because, verse 2, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. In other words, people who think themselves knowledgeable, and therefore very proud of their knowledge, they're the truly ignorant ones. That's the irony here. While those who are truly knowledgeable are humble because they know enough to know that they don't know. Or as Kay put it, knowledge is proud that it has learnt so much, while wisdom is humble that it knows no more. It's not so much knowledge that we need, it is love. I'll not go so far as the Beatles to say that all we need is love, but that's what we need to govern our relationships in the church. Love. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. I love Philip's uh, paraphrase of this passage. While knowledge may make a man look big, it is only love that can make him grow to full stature. We need love, first of all. We need love for God, brothers and sisters. Loving God, verse 3, above all. That's the best kind of knowledge because, you see, because loving God, Paul says, we're known by God. When you love God, you're known by God. Now, that's sort of a surprise twist, isn't it? It's a surprising text for us. We might have expected Paul to say, loving God, we know. When we love God, we come into knowledge. Well, we do come into knowledge, but uh, a little different than you might have expected. It's not knowing so much that's important for a Christian as being known. Being known is what's so important to the true Christian. Being known by God. That is the, the, the highest privilege and the most humbling position in the world. To be known by God. To know that you were both before the view of God, a phrase we use from time to time, quorum Deo, we live before the face of God. But not only before His face, seen by Him, but treasured by him as trophies of it. That's what you are. You are trophies 
of His grace, whom He loves to know. I say enjoying that unspeakable privilege of being known by God cannot but direct and govern the way you consider yourself, the way you think of yourself, and the way you think of others, and the way you relate to others. Being known by God humbles a person. It gives him a true perspective or her through which, which he or she may rightly view and, and love her brothers and sisters in Christ, even those that he or she might be tempted to look down on, his weaker siblings in the faith. And loving God first, being known by him, we are ready, second, to love others. You see, the real problem in Corinth wasn't a theological one. That wasn't the real crux of the problem here. As much as the stronger Christians might have wanted to frame it, you know, like that, a theological matter, a matter of knowledge. That's our problem here. We've got a, we've got a shortage of knowledge among some of, that wasn't the problem. Even if they were able somehow to, to solve this, this problem, this question of meats offered to idols for everyone simultaneously, another issue would just rise to take its place. You know that. You've been a Christian long enough to know that. Now, the problem was not that they, a matter of knowledge or, or of theology. The problem was that they did not love. That was the problem. They didn't love their brothers and sisters who took a different view, who were not as far along in the faith as they were, whose hearts were not yet fully freed in this particular matter. And here's how we know that. They were not doing what love does. Look with me at what love does. For one thing, rather than criticizing, love sympathizes. It's an interesting and important fact that Paul actually agrees in this passage, doesn't he? He, he agrees in some substantial measure with the bad guys in Corinth in this, in this passage. He admits that. You know, as to some of the most important principles involved here, the proud and the haughty were right. They were technically right. And, and those who were tender of conscience, the weak, they were wrong in this matter. It was not wrong for a Christian to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Idols, Paul says, are, agrees with them. They're not real gods, verse 4. They have no real existence. There's no God but one. Nobody receives the meat that's offered to those idols except the person who eats it. But he appeals to them. There are some who just don't get that. There are some who aren't there yet. Some who have so recently come out of that culture of idolatry into the faith, they, they just can't get past it for now. They didn't understand that food doesn't draw us any closer to God and it doesn't defile us before God, as Jesus put it so memorably. It's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out. But love will, instead of criticize, will sympathize. Love will sympathize with these brothers and sisters. After all, we're not all of us new at one time to these very questions. All of us were. And the Lord Jesus Christ, is sympathetic to you, isn't he? 
My, oh my, how patient the Lord has had to be and continues to have to be with me. Maybe you're of the same conviction too. So patient with your spiritual slowness. So patient with your blockheadedness and mine about so many things. Is he not patient with us to teach us the same thing over and over and over? Sometimes I think the Lord must, must look at me and say, how many times do I have to teach you the same thing again and again? When are you going to get this? He doesn't treat us impatiently, of course. But you understand what I'm saying. If the Lord exercises so much patience and so much forbearance with you, can you not be patient with one another over the weaknesses, over the failings that all of us have as Christians? All of us. Who of us can truly consider ourselves? I mean, who here, if I asked you to raise your hand, would say that you really are superior to the other people sitting down the pew? Don't do it, please. <laughs> But who would? who would? Who of us would dare? No, no, dear flock, we're all going to have to bear with one another, including those areas where we do not agree. Those areas where we have room not to agree, where, where some are more mature or less mature than others. And then we will, in love, sympathize with each other. We will act also in love. So we're not only sympathizing, we're acting now in love. Sympathy is something. Acting is quite another. Knowing that, that the enjoyment of one liberty or another, particularly right in the presence of that weaker brother, will supply to him or her sufficient temptation or cause for a brother or sister to do something against their own conscience. Put this, this stumbling stone in front of them, this temptation, something their conscience says they shouldn't. Love will act. How will love act? Truly sympathetic love will, will act by leaving it off, by making a sacrifice, by doing without the thing that would cause our brother or sister to stumble. Now I hear your hearts. Some of yours, wait a minute. Are you saying I got to be a slave to the conscience of the weaker conscience of my brother and sister? That's not what I'm saying, not at all. We're not slaves to each other's consciences, and we'll deal with that question another day. But think about this. If giving up a glass of wine with lunch in the presence of your brother or sister for whom that would be a trial or, or temptation or a stumbling stone. If, if leaving off the cigar, you know, leave it in the humidor for another day when he's or she isn't around. I don't know how many of you weaker conscience ladies are tempted to smoke cigars, but uh, if there are any of you here, I will not be smoking it. I hate cigars anyway. But, uh, you know, can we not make some sacrifices? Can we not... Can we not leave off some things for each other once in a while whose consciences are, you know, choosing the type of entertainment that we go to tonight, the movie that we attend tonight? For you, your conscience is free to attend that movie. 
for him or her, there's a real problem. There's something, something about that movie or something in it that simply would violate. Go to another movie. Find something else to do or to watch or to spend time together. You know, fill in the blank, whatever it is. You, you can think of these things better than I can list them for you this morning. To keep his conscience clear, is it too much to ask, really? When, if it is, if it is too much to ask, then you've got another question to ask yourself. Am I really free? Or am I, in fact, a slave to my wine and my cigars and to that movie? Who is your master? How free are you? Paul says in his typically enthusiastic and hyperbolic way here in verse 13 that if eating meat makes my brother stumble, you know what? I'll become a vegetarian. Plain and simple. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, this passage sets me back on my heels because I love meat. I love from filet mignon to filet o fish, you know, from Angus burgers to McDouble burgers. I love it all. So to give up meat, that's an act of love as far as I'm concerned. But here's Paul saying that he would do just exactly that if it meant that my brother would grow up in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. Brothers and sisters, what we have here is a summons. It really is. It's a summons to our hearts. The Holy Spirit is calling us all to think very carefully about just how much we love, how much we love our brothers and sisters, or if it's something else that governs our relationships to our brothers and sisters. If it's love not seeking to gain something from them, but that gives oneself for them. How might we love? How might we, how might we lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters without expecting anything in return? How we might help them to bear their burdens with no implied quid pro quo how we might sacrifice ourselves for them as Christ sacrificed himself for us, whatever that might require of us, whatever that might cost us. They can only love this way, you know, who know themselves to be the recipients of, of greater love. And we are. Because there's no greater love in the universe than that with which you and I have been loved. Our Savior has laid down His very life for us. He surrendered the glories in heaven to be laid in a manger, the, the accolades of angels for the injuries of executioners and the wrath of God poured out on Him. He gave it all, all for you, and for me, let me ask you then, what sacrifice is too great for us to make? Amen.